You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our first reading will be the New Testament reading, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5-13. through 13. If you uh, don't have or didn't bring a Bible this morning, uh, there should be a Bible in the in the back of a pew near you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home as a gift from Trinity. And then as a reminder, uh, when I conclude our reading, I'll declare to you that this is the word of the Lord, and our corporate response is thanks be to God. If you would please stand for our reading. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. We'll go ahead and start at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined to do as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You'll turn with me to our Old Testament reading and sermon text for today out of First uh, Samuel 13. We're going to read verses 1 uh, through the first part of verse th- uh, 15. 1 Samuel 13, 1-15. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he had sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of the Beth Haven, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. 
Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from, from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself um, and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went, bef- they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we've come now because you've commanded us to come. We've come now because you've promised to feed us, to instruct us, to bless us, to remind us of the forgiveness of sins, to feed us, and to send us. So we come because you've commanded us We've come because you've made glorious, almost unbelievable promises. So Father, we come now, we come now to hear your word. We come now um, and ask that you would protect us from all of our enemies. Oh God, that you would awaken us again to the glories of the gospel, the power of your word, that we would marvel together again at, at all you've orchestrated and commanded of us. God, may we now listen to your word, meditate on your word, and be transformed by the power of your spirit through your word. In your name we pray, amen. There are two basic contrasts um, that we're going to navigate from here through the rest of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And it is the contrast between Saul and David. Um, Samuel often being the one that points out, um, Nathan later points um, this distinction out, but it's a contrast between these two rulers um, that that marks one as uh, a king chosen by the people, um, a king like the other nations, and David, um, who will be a king after God's own heart. You know, the famous statement about David um, is going to appear for the very first time in our text today. But I want to get in front of you these two contrasts, and, and you're probably over the next several years um, going to get really, really tired of me telling you about these contrasts. Um, but we are, in fact, going to come back to them again and again and again. Um, the first of those two contrasts, uh, actually both of them appear in our text today. The first of those two contrasts um, is a kind of arrogant presumptuousness um, that comes with kings like the other nations. A kind of utility, a kind of excuse making, but but ultimately a kind of arrogance 
and pride that presumes upon the grace of God and presumes to have more authority um, than it actually has. And so it continues to our day. But it's a kind of arrogance that marks a certain kind of ruler, a certain kind of magistrate, a king, a senator, a president, a judge, that assumes that there is no authority higher than their authority, that there is no one else to answer to. And as we're going to see increasingly in the rule of Saul, it is that kind of pride, that kind of arrogance. And pride, as we've talked about um, numerous times in, in our gatherings and in different contexts in our church, um, has been completely subverted and redefined in our culture. Um, actually, what's defined as humility in our culture is actually what the Bible would define as pride. Um, instead, our culture defines pride um, as any level of certainty that there is an authority outside of us, any certainty regarding what that authority has declared to us and said to us. And biblically, um, humility is actually that. It's a kind of um, sure reliance on and confession of the fact that there is a God and he has spoken. And one of the increasing marks of Saul's reign and his relationship to those around him is going to be this mark of pride. That he is the highest authority, that there is no one else to answer for. And from the very beginning with David, we're going to see a man who acknowledges almost everywhere um, that that God is God. In fact, God God not only is God God, but, but God is actually Um, established other authorities around him that he is subject to. So that's the first contrast, and it's going to show up in our text today. The second contrast is is the basic response that, that everyone has when confronted with the reality of their sin. Um, these are almost always the only two responses that one will find in the world. This isn't unique to kings. It's not unique to Saul and David. It is two responses, and actually it's two responses that we are going to be confronted with over and over again, not just as we observe um, the lives of these two kings, uh, but also as we consider our own life as we live before God. Um, Saul increasingly, and there's a pattern here, it's going to happen Three times, right, right off the bat, over the, over the course of the next few chapters, Saul three times is confronted with sin, with disobedience to God and the word of the Lord. And his response to being confronted with his sin is to deflect, to make excuses, to point away from his own behavior, to point away from taking responsibility for his own actions, his own words, and instead to blame someone else, or to blame circumstances around him. David, as we're going to see again and again um, over the course of his life and his rule, when confronted with his sin, in many ways his sin makes Saul's sin look pale. When confronted with murder, when confronted with adultery, His response is to submit himself to God and to recognize that he had sinned against the Lord and to ask God for mercy. We, we 
used for our confession of sin this morning, Psalm 51, a famous prayer of David offered um, after he is found out with his sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband. And he then falls on his face and there's a startling line in that confession. He says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's shocking because it's, seems when you read the story and we'll get there so you're getting like a preview of that sermon which is probably a year from now who knows um when confronted with that sin when you see that story you'd say that that's balderdash david i mean you sinned against everybody you had a man murdered committed adultery you betrayed the authority given to you as a king but David's confession is spot on. And it's a contrast to Saul's response when confronted with his sin. That David sees that at the heart of all sin is that it is against God. So the two contrasts I'm going to draw your attention to as we look at this story that we're going to come back to. We're going to, it's going to kind of crash upon us almost every week here on out. The contrast between the the arrogance of Saul and the humility of David, kind of presumption that comes often um, with uh, civic office, the idea that I have all authority, therefore I can solve all the problems, therefore I can be the salvation of a people, um, and I don't have to submit to anyone, no, no one, not even Samuel has the authority that I have. Versus David's humility to submit to and acknowledge God and that God had invested other people, including in David's lifetime, Saul, with a kind of authority that must be honored. And two, what do you do with your sin? When confronted with it, is there repentance? Is there an acknowledgement that I've sinned against God? Or is there deflection, refusal to take responsibility, refusal to acknowledge your sin, instead to point away to circumstances, to point away to what other people are doing, to point away to how hard things are? So those two contrasts are important, and I want us to see them. So, We've just come out of Samuel's kind of prophetic sermon as he brings to bear um, a witness against the people of Israel saying, I haven't defrauded you. I've given you no cause to seek after a king like the other nations. So when things go south, you can't point back to my failures as a judge. He's then said, and God hasn't failed you. Over and over and over again, when you rebelled against him, when you went after other gods and chased after the gods of other nations, um, and you found yourself oppressed and you cried out to him, he, he never once has failed to answer you, to rescue you, to forgive you, and call you back to himself. And you instead, in the face of God's faithfulness, in the face of my faithfulness, you still demanded for yourself a king, a king like the other nations. The people respond in repentance and joy. And so, we then come to 
chapter 13. Saul has now um, been ruling, uh, has been named as a king for about a year and now has actually become king and has reigned as king over Israel for two years. Um, and they've dealt with the Ammonites, who remember back in chapter 11, and now in chapter 13, they have to deal with their other enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines are always a problem. Um, and so in dealing with the Philistines, he calls together 3,000 men. Uh, doesn't call together the whole army. doesn't call together uh, the entirety of Israel's men to come and go to war against the Philistines. Instead, he only gathers 3,000 men. Um, this is going to be somewhat of a, a quick strike and uh, his son, Jonathan. Jonathan's an interesting character in the book of Samuel. Interesting for a number of ways. His friendship with David is beautiful and precious. We're gonna learn much from it. Um, But also Jonathan is one of the few characters in all of scripture of which nothing bad is ever said. Nothing. He, He is held up as a courageous man, as a humble man, as a godly man, as a loyal friend. He's going, he's, going to, uh, he's going to watch uh, his father unravel in front of him and fall into sin. Um, he is going to have the temptation of, of presuming that the throne should be his. Um, he's going to be confronted with, with lots and lots of difficult circumstances, painful circumstances. Um, and, and instead, in, in the face of all of those circumstances, he also is a contrast with his father, Saul. There's not a single word spoken that's negative uh, about Jonathan. Um, so Jonathan, uh, Saul then gathers uh, these 3,000 men and then Jonathan goes and defeats, in verse three, defeats the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. This is where the story takes a bit of a turn. Philistines evidently were really unhappy that Jonathan went and plundered their fortress, um, their garrison there, Geba. Um, they heard about it and they gathered everyone. Like, this isn't going to stand. Um, Jonathan, who does he think he is? Uh, And so they gather around 30,000 men um, to go to war against Israel. Um, And uh, all of Israel begins to know this, that they stink in the nostrils of the Philistines and there's no way we can defeat 30,000 Philistines coming to march against us. We're going to find out later in the chapter that one of the reasons um, they can't defeat the 30,000 Philistines standing around them is because of um, gun control laws uh, at the time. Um, at the very end of the chapter, we find out that the uh, Philistines wouldn't allow them to have any smiths um, in uh, blacksmiths in the land of Israel um, because they were afraid that Israel would use those blacksmiths to make their AR-15s. And so um, they couldn't have them. So we want to keep uh, we want to keep um, Israel from having arms. And so, they, uh, and so Israel is looking at a trained army, an army that has largely held them in, um, in um, suppressed and oppressed for uh, quite a long time. Um, and 30,000 of them have gathered to march against Israel um, and to defeat Israel. And, uh, um, and Israel is looking at this going, we are doomed. In fact, they're so doomed um, the text tells us uh, that they are so afraid um, that they're hiding in caves, they're digging up graves and hiding in the graves, um, they're crossing the Jordan and just getting out of town, because um, what is about to happen to them, they recognize, is very, very bad. Um, things are about to go very, very poorly for us. Saul, in the meantime, um, is gathering 
um, the people to resist this attack and to fight against them. Um, and, uh, and as he does so, he does so with clear instructions from Samuel, wait for me seven days. Wait for me, prophet, to come seven days. We will offer the sacrifices and obey the Lord. Things start to unravel. Gets to the seventh day and Saul looks around and almost everyone's gone. People are fleeing again, hiding in tombs, hiding in caves, fleeing the country, abandoning the fight and the army. Looks around and he finds that as 30,000 Philistines are marching against him, he has 600 men. Which is interesting because that's twice as many Gideon had. He wakes up the seventh morning. Samuel's still not there. So he says, bring to me things necessary. And he lists two specific offerings. The ascension offering and the peace offering. Everyone in the Old Testament, when the offerings are brought before God and you bring all three together, there are three offerings that are brought into the presence of God. In fact, when we gather for worship on Sundays, um, our service is broken into essentially these same three offerings. Um, The first of those three offerings is the ascension offering or the consecration offering. Um, It accords with our call to worship Accords with our confession of sin and prayer um, and, uh, and leading into um, the pardon that's given to us, which is actually the second offering. That first offering, is an, um, it was a burnt offering. And, and the idea was you offered a sacrifice to God. That sacrifice would be burned up. And in the smoke, the smoke then would ascend before the throne of God and the presence of God. And in that smoke, the worshipers would ascend into the presence of God and before the throne of God. Um, it was called a consecration offering and it was a, a way of, of, of confessing as a people in the presence of God, we are wholly and completely yours. This is how we worship. Every time we gather, we begin by coming into the presence of God and confessing together in the call to worship, we belong to you, wholly and completely. The second offering, which is notably absent, it's actually an important clue for one of the things you should look for in this story. It's notably absent is the guilt offering. Having been brought into the presence of God, now standing before the throne of God in his presence, um, we are now immediately aware of the fact that we're sinful, that we have sinned, and that we need pardon, we need forgiveness. So the old covenant was a peace offering. It was the... Uh, the guilt offering. You offered a, um, a sacrifice um, as an atonement for your guilt. When we do it here, we get on our knees and we confess our sins. We're reminded that because and through the work of Jesus, those sins are forgiven. That guilt has been removed from us. Saul doesn't do that. The third offering is a peace offering. It's an acknowledgement 
um, that we have peace with God. And, and we now sit in peace with God and he feeds and nourishes us. So the peace offering was to be shared with the people. It wasn't just um, like the burnt offering that's all burnt up into the presence of God. It wasn't like the guilt offering, which was um, then considered unclean. It was the peace offering where the people of God partake of with God a meal. It signified that God was at peace with them. They'd been reconciled to God and that he himself then would promise to feed them. This accords with, primarily for us when we gather on Sundays, the Lord's Supper. And so we gather in this room, we ascend into the presence of God, thereby confessing we belong to him. Um, in his presence, we then confess our guilt, and he declares over us that Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And last, then, God feeds us. He feeds us because he's our father, he's been reconciled to us, and we have peace with him. Saul, not waiting for Samuel, first offers the consecration offering or the burnt offering, skips the guilt offering, and moves straight to the peace offering. There is, even in that progression, a kind of presumption Peace with God is not established by blood. It's not established by a necessary death. It just is. But in the midst of offering that, guess who shows up? Samuel. Sometimes I ask rhetorical questions and no one answers, and it makes me sad. Samuel. Samuel shows up. Samuel goes, What are you doing? What does Saul say? Caught red-handed, doing something that he hasn't been authorized to do. Doing something he doesn't have the authority to do. See, God establishes kings and he establishes priests. Kings aren't priests. Priests aren't kings. So here's Saul disobeying the word of the Lord that had come to him through Samuel and offering a sacrifice even though Samuel hadn't arrived yet, in fact, told him to wait. Saul's response to Samuel's question is, well, the Philistines, I mean, they're really bad. Look at them. There's lots of them. Two, you weren't here. I mean, where are you? Where have you been? Three, the people. Look at them. They're fleeing. Confronted with his disobedience to God's commands, his response is not to humble himself before the word of the Lord. His response is to point around him to all the problems and his circumstances and to blame everyone but himself. Do you do that? Sharp word to your husband. Irritated. Maybe you've been home all day. He walks in. And rather than coming to hang out, have a nice conversation in the kitchen, he plops down in the lazy boy chair. You speak sharply to him. Rudely to him. 
And that tinge of guilt comes. I shouldn't talk this way to him. That wasn't honoring to him. And you immediately drown out that moment of hearing again the words of Ephesians 5. You drown it out with, I've been here all day, I'm exhausted. I'm just a little snappy. Husbands, fathers, you're tired. Been at the grind all day, having to deal with an annoying boss. Some of you have an annoying boss. Then you come home, tired, maybe you didn't sleep well last night. You come home, the kids have been waiting all day to wrestle. Like elbow to the face, ready to go. But you're tired. So you push off the kids, you send them to their rooms. You think now is a great time for you guys to sit quietly and read or color and not talk or say anything at all for the next two hours. We're going to have a two-hour reading quiet time now. Neglecting your obligations as a father, love your children, to go home, see it as an absolutely central part of your vocation before God. And you feel a twinge of guilt a moment where, where you know you're calling as a father to love your children, to self-sacrificially love your children. You tell that voice to shut up. You had to deal with Bob, boss Bob, all day. Boss Bob, well, he was terrible. He made your life terrible today. And John, the guy who works for you, got you yelled at by boss Bob. Because John didn't label the sale right in the software where you tag stuff. So your day was terrible because of John and because of Bob. I don't need to play with the kids. I don't need to invest in the kids. I don't need to love them. It's, you know, it's relatively loving to send them to read. They need to read. I want them to read. So they're going to have two hours of quiet reading time while I come home and kick off my shoes Watch UVA play Duke tonight. Do you do this? But when confronted with the reality of your sin, do you point to circumstances or to other people or explain it away and not take responsibility and not repent before God. Saul does. As a result, Samuel says in verse 13, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart first time that phrase is used to describe David 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal of Benjamin. Now here's the interesting thing. They're going to win this battle. They're going to defeat the Philistines. Largely due to Jonathan. Actually, almost exclusively due to Jonathan. But in the midst of it, a ruler ordained by God, chosen by the people, who, remember, started out so well, is going to lose his kingdom. I want us to end this morning by by making, I'm going to say four, but really it's three. I'm just going to repeat one twice. Observations about what's going on in this text. First one is you cannot serve God, cannot seek the Lord's blessing while disobeying the commands of God. Please hear that. You can't act and behave in ways that are contrary to what God has commanded and then expect that God will bless what you do as you rebel against what God has commanded. You can't live in such a way that you're in rebellion to how God has commanded us to be and expect God to bless it. So men, you can't be addicted to pornography. Watch it. Look at it. Seek it out. Linger on an image. And at the same time, expect that God will bless your marriage. It doesn't work that way. You, you, can't, you can't rebel against the commands of God to gather with the people of God in faith and joy and refuse to gather with the people of God and then wonder why you've grown cold to the things of God. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, let me go a step further. You can't, hearing the command of God to gather in his presence by faith, filled with joy and gratitude, and show up curmudgeoning. Because he's still bald and he talks too long. Or whatever. It's too hot, it's too cold. I had to walk like a block and a half. Whatever the thing is, you can't do that, show up without faith, expectant to meet with God, to hear the word of God, to celebrate communion with the people of God. You can't show up bitter or, 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 or angry or resentful um, and not hopeful and not filled with faith and then wonder but why, why God feels so distant from you. 
You cannot seek the blessing of God while actively disobeying the commands of God. It just doesn't work that way. God has instructed us in his kindness and in his mercy. And please, please hear this. We're going to get this as a major point in a minute. You can't justify yourself. You can't make yourself right with God. And please don't get, me confu- get this confused with some sort of works-based righteousness. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. But having received his favor, you can't then persist in disobedience to him and expect his blessing. You don't serve him by disobeying him. You don't do what he commands by doing the opposite of what he commands. So Saul here, please, it's important that we don't don't just easily dismiss Saul's predicament. There's 30,000 people, men, with swords who hate him right over there he had 3,000 that 3,000 has dwindled to 600 and more leave every day not a sword among them except for Jonathan the text tells us Jonathan has one and Saul has one everybody else has got like pitchforks and they're like peewee baseball bat come out to fight against an army of 30,000 soldiers. And it's not like he goes and like sleeps with some cult prostitute. He doesn't denounce God. He, he's trying to worship God. You see that? Oh, don't miss that. It's easy to kind of write off Saul, like I'm so much better than Saul. He was taller, probably better looking, but he was lame and I'm awesome. It's easy to do that. Like think of Saul as like, because he's the bad guy. You've always heard about the bad guy, especially if you've been around the church. You get, you know, the story of Saul and David and all this stuff's going to happen. And Saul's, Saul's the bad guy. So we just look down our noses at Saul. But please consider the situation. I mean, he waited seven days. Everybody's running away. They're fleeing. They're burying themselves in tombs, for goodness sake. And it's not like he goes and just offers sacrifices to Malek. He's not murdering babies. He doesn't go and try to, as he'll do later, um, go and kind of have a seance, speak to the dead people. What does he do? Bring me the sacrifices. Let us worship God and seek his favor. Sounds pretty good, right? But it's in direct disobedience to God. You see, when pressure comes, when pain comes, when whatever the circumstances are, maybe again, it's it's just the end of a hard work day. It's Bob. (laughs) Sorry, Bob. Um, you just had a baby. I'm ripping on you here. Um, maybe it's um, maybe it's worse than that. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe uh, someone you love has gotten diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone you love 
dearly. I, I don't know what the circumstances are, um, but maybe they're really, really, really severe. Um, the call of the scriptures in that moment would not to be less precise, um, less devoted to following, listening, responding to the word of God. No, in, in that moment, it would be cling to this. When you have nothing else, when everything seems to be lost and you have no hope, cling to his words. Don't be novel. Don't be original and say, well, I've got a good heart. Cling to his words. Another pastor pointed out the the tendency in our day kind of flit between formalism and pietism and how that's seen in this text. A lot of us in this room have grown up in or been primarily around kind of uh, more kind of contemporary evangelical churches where kind of the underlying teaching in those places is all that matters is the heart. What motivates the heart Religion is largely something you feel inside and formalities and liturgies and reading prayers off a piece of paper um, and singing songs that might be stiffer than we're used to. Um, uh, those things really, that's, that's uh, the baggage of religion. Maybe you've heard this. What we want is a relationship. You heard that? Balderdash. But anyway, um, that, that, that tends to be where certain kinds of people come and it's a lot of us, we've come um, from those kinds of backgrounds. Um, and there is in the Reformed tradition, which we're in, uh, a whole different sort of thing called formalism. Who cares about your heart? Don't you dare feel anything. No joy, no smiling. Someone raised their hands in worship this morning. It was atrocious. No, we want to just sing the right songs, get down on our knees during confession of sin, and we stand up and we recite and listen to the pardon and we go through the things and the piano music was beautiful and good and, but not not joyful it was very it was well skillfully played and the singing was very skillful and the preaching was um it was kind of erratic but he's bald and um, that was needs some things to be desired but it's all formal and straightforward and followed the right pattern therefore god will bless us those are kind of the two schools. Do we do the right stuff in the right order so that God will bless us? Or do we feel like God blessed us? I left this morning, I wasn't quite sure. Just the murmurings of my heart weren't accorded the right sort of emotional melody. We tend towards both of those, of those poles. And they're both wrong. (laughs) Um, We see actually both at play in what happens here with Saul. In his response to Samuel, he says, "I, I, I didn't want to go to war without the Lord blessing me. There's the pietist. Who cares what God has commanded? Who cares what God has said? Don't be legalistic and religious. I mean, instead, I just had a heart feeling to worship God before we go to war. Just trying to feel stuff. 
So the pietist comes and it's condemned, but also the formalist is in play. Like, we have to do the right thing so that God will bless us. And that's not right. You see, we know his heart's not in it. In fact, we know that the entirety of the consecration of the burnt offering is a complete falsehood by Saul. Why? Like, how can you stand in the presence of God and say, everything I am is yours as you simultaneously disobey what God has commanded you to do? Oh, that we would avoid the trappings of formalism and cold, heartless thinking that we just go through the motions, pray the right prayers, do the right things, then God will bless us. And may we also avoid the trappings of pietism, of measuring everything according to our feelings. Oh, may we be a people who love the forms that God has given us. I'm delight in obeying God. May our liturgy be filled with joy. May we be, may we have a religious relationship with the living God. Formalism is not enough. Checking the boxes is not enough. God commands that we delight in him, that we take joy in the Lord. Never met a Presbyterian who was very good at understanding how to find the box called joy and check it. Smiled vigorously this morning, that qualifies therefore as joy. No! <laughs> you trust in the word of the Lord. When the, when the word that in Jesus Christ, I mean, imagine that for a second. Every single Sunday, and it's the same on purpose. Every single Sunday, somebody stands right there and declares to you, in Jesus Christ, Your sins are forgiven. That's not just a box to check. That's the most earth-shattering news imaginable. It's shocking and it should stun you again and again and again that you stand in the presence of the holy God that we can't even look at, that no human being can look at because we lack righteousness and holiness. We deserve death. And yet week after week after week, God says in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Don't check a box Marvel. And to the pietists in this room, it means something that those words are declared. It's not just a weird religious formality, it matters. It's not just a feeling in your heart, it is a Legal declaration every Sunday. Endorsed and blessed by God. So to my fellow Presbyterians. Rejoice. To the pious in the room. Treasure that it's said. That it's declared. 
that when it's said and it's spoken and it's declared over you by a representative of Christ in this room, it has real authority. It counts. Last observation. You see it? The two offerings instead of the third, the guilt offering being skipped. You see it plainly and painfully in Saul's response. The heart of Christianity is not a sinless life. It's not you've got your act together. It's not you've cleaned up perfectly. Made yourself presentable before God. The heart of Christianity is repentance. Martin Luther actually declared that this is the beginning and end of Christianity is repentance. The shocking thing um, this last summer when I was studying First and Second Samuel just jumped off the page to me. And then it just appeared everywhere. It is the author of Samuel is telling us a story in order to induce us, to call us, to invite us, to trust in the mercies of our God. You see, what marks the people of God is not self-righteousness. It's not a people who figured everything out and got our life perfectly together. What marks the people of God is that we treasure, we marvel at the declaration given again week after week after week in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. When our own hearts confront us in the middle of the work day or in the middle of the week with our sins, we confess those sins and find precious again in Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. When a brother or a sister approaches us and confronts us with our sin, our response is not to justify, not to point all the other circumstances. I'm not to say, well, where have you been? Um, it is to say, in Jesus Christ, my sins are forgiven. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I don't know what you think Christianity is. I don't know what you've been told Christianity is, but this is the heart of it. God in his mercy confronts us with our sin. And every word in that sentence was on purpose. In his mercy confronts us in our sins. And as we'll see play out in Samuel, the difference between a life that unravels and leads to destruction and God's judgment, um, and the difference between that and a life that leads to the blessing of God and the promises of God. It's not some differing kind of measures of righteousness, but one, when confronted with his sin, pointed to everything else and denied his sin, and the other fell on his face and said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
This is where Christianity begins. In fact, this is the fuel, the engine that drives the whole of Christianity. A people who say, yes, with God, my sins are terrible, but your mercy is glorious. Let's pray.